Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Thursday, November the 19th, 2020. On this edition of The Politocrat, COVID, Chaos, Corbyn. Three different subjects, but all of note. And some go beyond their C-word. I'll explain. Coming up next. Welcome back. On this Thursday, a few things to get to. First of all, um, please subscribe to this podcast. Let's start with that, shall we? Um... I want to just add that this podcast is now available on Audible. So if you are an Audible person, someone who likes to listen to your audiobooks, you can also add the Politocrat podcast to that library of yours. And you can listen on the go. And I hope that you do just that. The Politocrat podcast every day, available on Audible at audible.com. You can listen to this podcast for free on Audible. So please, uh, if you are an Audible person, add this podcast to your library. And I thank you for doing that, by the way. Also, you can subscribe to my thoughts, more thoughts. If you want more thoughts, subscribe now at more.substack.com. More, that's M-O-O-R-E dot substack dot com. So I would greatly appreciate that as well. I do write there every now and again. Um, I do not inundate with writing, but I do write there and um, you'll be able to get my dispatches on some of the issues, topics, reflections of the day. So I just want to also add that. Those are the two things that I wanted to say at the top. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you may access it. So having said that, I wanted to move along to the topics of this particular day. We are just one week away here in the United States now from the Thanksgiving holiday. If you celebrate that. We're one week away from it. And obviously it's going to be very different next week than it has been if you're someone who celebrates the holiday. As it's been, you know, probably much of your life or many, many people's lives. I mean, obviously people go through lots of different challenges, lots of different um, tests that, and difficulties that life throws at you. Um, And this is just one more. For some people, this is the first time that they've really faced a major difficulty in life or something that's an obstacle in life, dealing with this through a whole year now almost. And that puts a mental strain and stressor on people. And then there are other people who have been through this before, things like this before. This is one more chapter in a lifetime of struggle and adversity. So... 
for some people it's different for other people it's it's not different it's it's something completely new or something completely whatever it's just all of this right now is very taxing you know and we have crossed a place in the United States that in terms of this pandemic has become horrifying and horrifying not just in the number of people who have been lost but horrifying when you really think about the fact that Donald Trump and the Republican Party and a number of these governors around the country could have done something about this to reduce this number. We now have in this country well over 250,000 people dead from coronavirus, from the COVID-19 disease here in the United States. The number now is around, I think, 254,000 people dead. That is over a quarter of a million people. What I think we need to do, and I think it's very important that we need to do these things. Number one, the corporate news media needs to be running a scroll of the names of all of the people who have passed. I really do mean that. Anderson Cooper did this a few weeks ago on CNN. And I think that was when he was marking the number of people at the 200,000 mark. I think that was sometime last month. And I still have Maybe I should put some audio of that in, but I still have the clips of that. And he scrolled the names. And I think that that is what the media needs to do now. And I think they need to continue doing it. And instead of giving us the stock market and how the stock market is doing, or even instead of giving us, oh, you know, this is the number of millions of votes that Joe Biden and Donald Trump have. Take both of those things off the screen and put on your screen instead, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, whomever, everyone, the names of the people who have died from this virus here in the United States of America. That's what I think the corporate news media should be doing. And I think they should do it every day. And if you can put photographs of these individuals next to their names, alongside their names, then even better. I get it. You know, CNN does do tributes um, at the ends of some of their programs to those who passed. And those are really heartbreaking and powerful. And I like that. But I really do think that we have to not only do the tributes, but remind people that over a quarter of a million people in this country have lost their lives. I mean, 
to this deadly virus. We have to remind people of that. Because I know that people can't help but remember this virus because they're wearing a face mask. At least most people in the country are. But I don't know how much of a most that really is. What is it, 56%, 60%? I mean, here in, in San Francisco, for example, even in this area of San Francisco, I would say when I take excursions around and walk around and and interact and observe and, and everything else, and I go outside and do all of that, I would say about 90% of the people that I come across are wearing a mask or some kind of face covering. And if people aren't wearing the face covering, then they have a mask in their hand or they just don't have a mask at all. Or they walk around with a mask under their chin, which is really a really bad habit and something that's unhealthy, unsanitary and incorrect. But again, um, you know, We've been so miseducated. We've had so many mixed messages in both state and federal government that I think some of this is partly responsible, but also it's just people, you know? People are going to do the lazy shortcut thing. Well, I I don't want to wear it on my face all the time, so I'm going to just stick it under my chin. I mean, that's worse for you, quite frankly, than not wearing one at all. Or at least it, to me, is functionally equivalent because why would you put bacteria from your neck and your chin back on your face <laughs> why would you do that and put it on your in your nose up your nostrils and in your mouth i don't i don't get why that is such a grand idea but people are people and there will be people who will do this because they want to take the shortcut it's a lazy thing. It's, well, I'll compromise with my own health and I'll just stick this thing under my chin. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but there you go. You know, there needed to be strong guidelines. And in the beginning, there weren't. Certainly, obviously not from Donald Trump and the Republicans. Uh, certainly not. The, their governors, for the most part, with a few exceptions, were modeling behavior that said, you don't need to wear a stinking mask. You don't need to wear a friggin' mask. You don't need to wear no stinking mask here. You know, you don't have to do that. I don't need you to put that on. You still got a governor in South Dakota who's saying that, basically. Well, if you want to wear a mask, you can. But if you don't, you shouldn't be shamed for not wearing one. I mean, that's not leadership, folks. That is not leadership. We need to do a few things here. As I said, put the names of every one of these individuals on the television. Because I think it's important. I don't care that maybe some people aren't going to look at it. It needs to be documented and it needs to be properly put in context. And instead of, and I get what, they do instead of some of the people in the media saying, well, imagine if it was three football fields. Imagine if it was the Statue of Liberty completely covered in, you know, sticky notes. Post-it notes. I mean, no, 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 no. 
we need to confront and directly envelop ourselves in this. It needs to be painful. We have to go through this. And I say that not because I want that, but I say that because it's necessary for us to not numb ourselves to this. And of course, to listeners who know someone who has died from this virus or listeners who know someone who has this virus or listeners who may themselves have this virus. There's no way that you're going to be numb to this. No way. This is a virus and a pandemic that we have to face. And James Baldwin said it best. Not everything that is faced can be changed. But nothing can be changed until it is faced. We really do need to have, right now, on all of these networks, a complete running tally on the screen. And I'm not talking about on a ticker. I'm talking about a third of your screen with every single name and age of each of the 254,000 people and counting who have died in the United States of America from COVID-19. It's my fervent belief that that should be step one every day on all of these news networks. The other thing I think that should happen in addition to that is a half hour program daily dedicated to educating the public on the virus, on dealing with the virus. The other thing that I think should happen is a daily half hour program simulcast from these news networks and I think it should be a message from doctors, whether it's Anthony Fauci or whether it's someone else, Dr. Sanjay Gupta or whomever the doctor is, that talks about this virus and educates people about the virus and gives tips about what they must do. The CDC under Donald Trump and these Republicans has lost every shred of credibility. And only now are you seeing members of the task force coming out with a few weeks left of their reign, you know, the 62 days that are left. Only now do you see people slowly slinking out and saying, well, 
Yeah, this is really unprecedented. Yeah, no kidding. Dr. Fauci was telling us this back in March and April, that this was going to be a hellish time come November, come the winter, come the fall. He did say that. I remember, I've still got the video of all of this stuff. It is important to archive history. It really is, because history has a way of biting you in the backside when you think nobody's watching. And that's why it's important to document things. And I think we all need to do that. I think we all, in our own way, need to document these times and document what we're living through, as painful as it is. It is very painful. It isn't something we necessarily want to record for any kind of posterity. But it is important that we document these times, how we're feeling, whether it's diaries that you want to put these thoughts in, whether it's tweets. Diaries are much more personal and intimate, and I think those really... uh, I think are really indispensable. I don't do diaries myself, but there are people I know, a number of people I know who do write in diaries. And I think that from what I know, they, they've told me that it's very helpful. And I would certainly not disagree. I mean, I think it's very important to chart what your thoughts are about things. It helps. It helps, and it helps to talk to people. It really helps to talk to people. If you can't afford to speak to a mental health professional, and I talked about mental health a few days ago, and I'm still trying to get a mental health professional on because they're all busy. I mean, uh, that's not even, that's not a joke. They're busy. But if you can't afford to talk to a mental health professional about How are you feeling about these times, about all of this death that's surrounding you, you know? And it's come to your doorstep or it's come to someone you know's doorstep. Then hopefully you're able to talk to somebody out there, no matter whom it might be. But if that person is a sense or a source or a center of comfort and solace to you, then please, by all means, by all means, By all means, reach out to them. There are all kinds of hotlines. I gave you the one before a few days ago about the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Um, If if you are feeling that way, then I think you should um, certainly be of the mind to get in touch with um, those kinds of places. And and I, I will give that Number out again, actually, I think. I think that's important. Um, 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-8255. And the website is suicidepreventionlifeline.org. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you know people who need this help, um, they're really good professionally trained individuals who will be answering those phones, you know, and they will help you. I actually have interviewed some of the people who do this work and I've not posted it um, 
And maybe I should, because we are entering the holiday season. Um, and maybe some of what, um, what they say you may find to be very helpful to you. I've resisted posting it for a number of reasons. Um, but maybe I really should. Maybe I really should. Um, and I and I did these interviews months and months ago when this pandemic was just here in the United States, just beginning to hit. I mean, March, early April, when we were really just beginning to get a sense of where we were. You know, we were just beginning to understand. Once we got to March, mid-March and after March, um, into late March, um, we were beginning to get an idea that, holy crap, this thing here is no, um, this ain't going to be over in, in, in June or July, you know, you know, of course, Donald Trump was telling you it would be, he said by April, it would be gone. A stable genius is, uh, as unstable as ever and not a genius at all, a complete idiot and a danger to the United States of America. 62 more days of that madness. That is going to be an ordeal that will cause mental health professionals to be even more busy and cause you more stress, more strain and trauma and more, you know, the chemical imbalances that happen in us when all of these traumatic events happen. These are really um, troubling times for the average person, for anybody. And then for those who are on food lines, for those who are facing eviction, for those who can't pay rent, for those who, you know, can't take their kids to school, can't put them in school because schools are closed. So specifically New York City, for example, all the schools are closed there. And I'm sure that's true in other places in the country. And remote learning is is happening where it can happen to the extent that people can benefit from it because a lot of people do not have computers. So it dis inherently discriminates because you have a lot of people in this country who cannot afford a computer. You have a lot of people in this country who don't have internet access. You have black and brown kids, some of whom do not have computers. You know, you have black and brown kids who do have computers, but you have a cross seg segment of those communities and other communities, indigenous communities as well, some of whom who do not have a computer or internet access. So how are there, how are the kids there going to learn if they're staying home? And what is going to be happening for those children? So these are the kinds of issues, right? And um, maybe I should post these things about, um, maybe I should, maybe I, maybe I will, or maybe better yet, I'll have another conversation with the, uh, some of the people I've talked to over the last few months or a few months ago, because I think although although what they said was, I think, helpful, kind of now looking back at it, it's probably um, maybe better to just reach out to those individuals again and talk to them about what they do. And, you know, I was speaking to them about what they do and, 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 and how they hold up and what they feel and, and um, the kinds of phone calls they get to the hotlines, whether it's the prevention hotline number I just gave out to you and or whether it's domestic violence hotline, the hotline number there. You know, that's another thing that I shouldn't um, forget about. Um, 
Because that's not being talked about, is it? You know, it's not being talked about. When you have this kind of thing going on with this pandemic or anything like it, or even with politics, even with uh, who wins and loses an election, you are going to have, sadly, you're going to have men you know, the toxic, violent, toxically masculine, not to- well, violence is violent is toxic, period, you know, so, but I mean, toxic masculinity, you're going to have that um, in a society that really rewards it, champions it, and, and is of it, you're going to see these things happening, and there's going to be more unrest and violence in the household, and typically exacted upon women by men. And their phone number there is 800-799-7233, 800-799-SAFE, 800-799-7233. That is the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and their website is thehotline.org. I'm going to link once again to both of those hotline websites and their phone numbers because again we are entering now just a week before thanksgiving here in the united states again for those of you who celebrate that or who you know gather for it um because i don't celebrate thanksgiving i mean i i you know with family and and all um come together um to be celebrating family and 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 friends and and uh, you know those kinds of things very important things but i'm not celebrating thanksgiving because of course thanksgiving was not something to celebrate in the united states and the indigenous populations in this country um ha- can can recite you chapter and verse why it is not something that um is a happy event to be celebrating. I am simply saying that because we are, you know, we are at a very sensitive time in this country. We've just come through uh, a general election um, and we've just come through, you know, all of that. And we're still going through the shenanigans. And that's really what I want to get to next when I come back from the break is the chaos that continues. We've had, Joe Biden elected as president. He's president-elect. We've had history being made. Kamala Harris is vice president-elect. And literally in 62 days, both of them will be putting their hand on a Bible and raising their right hand. And both will be sworn in as the new president and vice president of these United States of America. But it is what has happened and what is going to happen between then and what's happening now, between now and then, that is, as Bobby Womack would say, a hell of a tester across 110th Street. I mean, this is across 62 days. And that's far longer than a street in Harlem. (music) 
Welcome back. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot to take in here, folks. A lot to take in. You know, I, I just think, the, to just finish off one thing I don't think I really got to. I think that every night there should be, or every day at some point, there should be a half-hour broadcast on masks, on wearing masks as well, on, on the virus, but on also proper mask wearing and proper physical distancing and hand washing and wearing gloves. I mean, I really think people should wear gloves. I wear gloves whenever I leave the house. I wear gloves. Gloves are already on before I leave the house. Mask is already on before I leave the house. You know, I don't wait to put a mask on when I am walking down the street. Oh, and I see, oh, now someone's coming down the street. Oh, let me put my mask on. No, 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 no. Because you've already been breathing into the air. And if you're asymptomatic, that breath, those particles, those droplets are in the air. And the doctors have been saying they can be in the air for minutes or hours. So what you need to do is put that mask on before you leave your home. Please put that mask on before you leave the house. Do not walk outside without your mask on. Oh, but now someone's coming. Let me stick it on. That's just bad, bad, bad behavior. That's just poor behavior. I'm sorry. That's just really poor, but... Again, look, people will look at me. I'm sure some people might listen to this and think, oh, well, he's moralizing again. Oh, you know, he's a moralizer. He's just self-righteous. This is not about any of that. It's not about being self-righteous. It's not about moralizing. It's about asking yourself, do you care enough? Do you care about your fellow human being or do you not care? I think even, by the way, Joe Biden, I think, makes this mistake a bit when he says, Oh, it's about patriot being patriotic. Well, I mean, I can understand why he's saying that. I think perhaps he's trying to appeal to this stereotype of right wingers being these patriotic people, and they're no patriotic than anybody else. I would argue they're probably less so because of what they've done to this country. Some of these people is just disgusting, and this Republican Party. But I think that that's what Joe Biden is talking about. He's aiming at the anti-vaxxer crowd, the libertarian crowd, uh, and the crowd of death cult that thinks that it's a really great idea um, to walk around with no mask on in the middle of a pandemic that's killed um, millions of people across the world and killed quarter of a million people plus here in the United States. And, you know, he's trying to appeal to the people who Say, I don't want to put a mask on. You can't stop me. The government's oppressing me. You can't appeal to people like this because they're just not going to listen to you, Joe. What I think you should do instead, and what I think Joe Biden should do instead, is to frame this as, what are your values? Are your values life or are they are your values death? And put it into stark relief. Because right now, the value system of the Republicans, and it has been for years, has been death. Heck, the value of this whole system has been about death. The system, as they say, is working just perfectly in that regard. The system's not broken in that context at all. It's not broken. 
But what I'm trying to say here to to the president-elect is that you really do have to draw a marker, draw a line in the sand and, and say that this is about life and death. And he has said this. He's said it more diplomatically, but nonetheless, he said it. This is about, he said this, the following. This is about saving lives. But you really have to go even further than that with some of the people out here. You have to say to them, what are your values? Are your values pro-life or are your values pro-death? And if your values are about pro-life, then you will wear a mask because a mask saves lives. It's really as simple as that. I think it has to be the kind of speech. He has to do a speech on this, by the way. When he is sworn in, and I don't know if he's going to do it at inauguration or if he's going to do it later on during the first 100 days, but I predict he's going to do a speech about this virus. He has to. I mean, you know, he's done loads of speeches about it, even, you know, during the campaign that that he just had. Excuse me. <clears throat> Pardon moi. He's done. <clears throat> he's done this. I mean, he has made a lot of speeches about this. And I do think Excuse me. I do think that uh, he will do another one. And I think during that speech, he has to talk more sharply and more pointedly about this. The way that Jimmy Carter did in 19, I believe, 1979. I covered this particular speech that Jimmy Carter did. uh, You know, the the so-called Debbie Downer speech, it was infamously called. You know, it was kind of, you know, this derisiveness against a woman, right? Debbie Downer, that was a whole character. And But the point is, is that people who said that that was what the speech was were, were talking about the blunt, unrelenting, unremitting nature of what Jimmy Carter was saying and how he was saying it. We have a consumerism that is toxic and self and selfless and, and selfish rather and self-ending and um, destructive. That's Those are the kinds of things that Jimmy Carter said during that address. And I did an episode, as I said, about this back in April or May of this year, maybe even March of this year, I forget. Um, and I was saying in that episode, wear a mask, if I remember correctly. God, that was months ago now, wasn't it? And I, I stress the importance of it. I'm not the only one, of course. There's so many people. People on Twitter have done this. Some of you listening have done this. You know, people all around the world. And that continues to this day. Wear a mask. Doctors telling you, you know, professionals in, in, the, in the sciences telling you, all of these people all over the place. People on television, newscasters, news anchors, pundits, Wear a damn mask. Wear a mask. Ads being run. You know, politicians everywhere, they're all telling you, wear a mask. And I think Joe Biden should 
do that. He should be telling people in a speech that he will give, whether it's at the inauguration or whether it's later on, um, challenge Americans. Ask them what the value system is. You cannot just say, well, now I'm going to unite you. You've got to have those open conversations with the American public and challenge the American public to be better. You can't just say, well, now I'm going to unite you. I think unity is very important, but before you get to unity, you've got to have justice. You've got to have justice. And you've got to have laws that reflect the respect of the humanity of black and brown people in this country, of Native Americans in this country. You've got to have laws and an ethos and a system and a structure that values the lives of black people in America. I mean, that's the only way we get justice, really, in this country. When we are reflected in the laws and the laws treat us with the respect and the humanity that white people are treated with. It's just everybody has to be given, has to be afforded and has to be provided that level an equal level of that kind of thing. Humanity must be respected and the laws and the protections of the laws must protect the humanity of all people, specifically and particularly black people. And so when we talk about unifying a country, this is what needs to be done. You can't unify a country when you've got all of this unemployment. You can't unify a country when you've got black people being murdered by the police and the police not ever even being indicted for it, much less arrested, much less lose their job. Breonna Taylor. I mean, you can't have this. You can't have unity and uniting the country when there's so many things to be resolved. The criminal justice system, the immigration situation that we've got. I mean, there's so much work that needs to be done. And uniting the nation comes after this work is done. That's how you begin to unite a nation is when those in the White House, those in power in the White House work to achieve things along with a Democratic Senate, which is why we have to vote in in Georgia. For those of you in Georgia who are listening, John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock, they are having an event today um, and they may already have had it by the time you listen to this. Um, which is a a get-out-the-vote rally, I believe it is. The two of them, Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff, are going to be appearing together at a physically distanced rally. 
in Georgia. And that is um, something that um, by the time you probably listen to this will have already have happened. Um, and it was scheduled to happen at uh, 4.15 or 4 o'clock Eastern time. So it may already have happened for those of you listening to this after that time. Um, and the details are at warnockforgeorgia.com. W-A-R-N-O-C-K-F-O-R-G-E-O-R-G-I-A.com. Um, and both of these Democratic Senate candidates will be there from Georgia. Very, very important. Um, early voting in Georgia for that race, by the way, starts on December the 14th. Just under a month from now. The registration deadline, the registration deadline, the voter registration deadline in Georgia for these two races is December the 7th. So that is very important, folks. Very, very important. I believe early in-person voting begins on December 7th. I've actually spoken to some voters down in Georgia and some of them have told me that they've already mailed off their vote. So there are people who I think right now, well, I know they've said that they've done it. They'd have no reason to, to lie. Um, that they have already sent in their ballots via mail, vote by mail. So that's going on right now in Georgia, folks. And so for those of you in Georgia, if you know, or if you know someone down in the Peach State, please make sure that you um, remind them um, that early voting is going on. Vote by mail is going on. Um, early voting in person begins December the 14th for this very, very, these two very important races. Um, and the registration deadline, the voter registration deadline, the registration to vote deadline in Georgia is December 7th. That's only what, roughly three weeks from now. Just under three weeks, from, a shade under three weeks from now. Um, so, you know, two and a half weeks from now. And it's very important that Georgia voters stay engaged. It's one more hurdle that we've got to uh, jump over, but we will do it. And we, the whole country will be, and quite frankly, the world will be watching Georgia because um, this is going to really determine these two races, whether or not we can unify the country. How do you unify a country? When you pass legislation that reflects the best interests of the country. How do you unify a country? How do you unify the country? This country? When you have a democratically controlled Senate that's looking out for you and not a Republican controlled Senate, as we currently have, that is looking out for its billionaire donor class and the top three or four percent. I mean, that is really how this works. Money and power. Um, those two things have gone together in this country, among other things, for a long, long time. And violence is one of the among other things. Enslavement is one of the among other things. Genocide is one of the among other things. Jim Crow is one of the among other things. I think that what you're going to see um, 
by the way, with Joe Biden is someone who is a deal maker. He's going to continue to be that as he's been in the Senate, as he had been in the Senate for many, many years. I think you're going to see that. But I think this is the opportunity for us to push him. As I've said before, we have to craft agendas. We have a mandate now. Joe Biden now has a, by the time you listen to this, has now a six million plus vote lead. And counting, and they're still counting votes. Georgia announcing its uh, audit, confirmed recount audit, you know, the which is going to show again and has shown that Joe Biden won Georgia, as we already knew. And this is just what you're seeing now. You know, it is the continued chaos of the Republican Party and Donald Trump and Again, it's very important that you go and vote in Georgia. If you are in Georgia, if you're a Georgia voter, make sure you're registered to vote. The deadline is the 7th of December. Make sure you early vote. Voting in person early, I think, begins again December the 14th. Uh, I've spoken to some Georgia voters who've already mailed in their ballots. So apparently that's beginning now. I need to get in touch with the right people to um, ascertain this just for confirmation and corroboration purposes. Um, You see the secretary of Georgia under attack by the two Republican candidates. I mean, this is just insidious stuff. Republican state of Georgia, secretary of state, um, who is no friend to voting rights, by the way. He has his hands very unclean, as I had mentioned yesterday to the racial justice attorney, Judith Brown Dianus, who is the executive director of the Advancement Project. And... Yesterday on this podcast, she and I had a conversation about voting and voting history and voting rights and how there's this constant push and pull between those of us who are fighting for voting rights and to the system and and the system which is pressing against it and the Republicans specifically who are pressing back against it. And so we, we need to get this, these two um, Democratic candidates elected in Georgia. We, we just have to. This is because really Joe Biden's presidency, and I've said this before, is not going to be as effective as it could be if you do not have these two Democrats elected to the United States Senate. We just have to have that happen. Otherwise, we are going to have an increasingly more disunited country. And these disunited states are going to continue because they didn't just start being disunited with Donald Trump. This began centuries ago. And social media, as I said the other day in another episode, has accentuated this. Opinion journalism has helped to accentuate this as well. The deregulation of the corporate news media by Bill Clinton has accentuated this. The scrapping of the fairness doctrine by Ronald Reagan's FCC has accentuated all of this. All of this has been accentuated. And that's where you've got all these divisions. You know, that's where you've got all this stuff. You know, it's really unpleasant stuff. And because there's no regulation, anything goes. You've got corporations controlling 98% of what you hear, read, or watch. You've got, you know, 
places like Clear Channel, I guess they've now merged into somebody else who control, you know, most of these radio stations and they have these hate, right wing hate radio people on them like a, you know, like a Rush Limbaugh, like a Mark Levin, like a, you know, I can go down the list, right? These people are racist and misogynist and anti-Islam. They are Islamophobes. They hate Muslim people. And this is what you're getting. And this is all because of all of these things. Deregulate. It wasn't just only about um, the Republicans. It was about a system that accentuated by some Democrats like Bill Clinton, for example, that brought us to this place. Republicans definitely did bring us to this place. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, the Powell memo I've talked about a million times here in 1971 and 72 um, to Nixon and all of that and the Supreme Court and how that's changed. I mean, this is this is about something deeper. This is a coup of the country, but it's a slow moving coup that started in the late 1960s with Nixon treasoning his way into the White House. I mean, the history's there. I've talked about it a million times. Probably bored um, some listeners to tears with it, but it's very important. History, as I've said before in this very episode, earlier in this episode, it's important to document history. It's important to archive history. Because like I said, you know, history has a way of coming back and biting you in the ass when you're not watching. And you have to watch. You have to keep your eyes on this. The shenanigans that went on in Wayne County this week. That is a continuation of an attack on black people that's gone on for hundreds of years. And it is nothing but a Jim Crow attack. A racist attack on black people, on black voters. To have two white Republican officials at Wayne County in that four-member Wayne County board, two Democrats, two Republicans, and the two Republicans, both white Republicans, say, well, we're not certifying Detroit. We'll certify everything else except Detroit and except Dane County. I mean, come on. Both of those places, Dane County is heavily black, at least 75% black. Detroit is 85% black as a city. Give me a break. Blatantly racist. And then you find out that this guy, and I heard this from Roland Martin's show, Roland Martin Unfiltered. You find out that the uh, the Facebook page of William Hartman, one of these, one of the two white Republicans who initially said, no, we're not certifying Detroit. You find out that his Facebook page has got all this racist characterizations and depictions of President Barack Obama on them. That wasn't reported in the corporate news media, was it? I found that out from Roland Martin Unfiltered. And that is why the black press and people like Roland Martin are critically important. And I've told you, and I've said this many times, that these are people you should be listening to. That you need to also, I think, listen to Alternative voices, people that you're not get. I mean, Roland Martin does get a lot of attention. He's been in the industry himself for quite some time, but still, he's busted his behind 
to build what he's been building and has been building it for 30 years. So he is one of a number of people that I have referenced here frequently who you should be listening to. Roland Martin, unfiltered. He's on Twitter at Roland S. Martin. And you can watch his show daily, Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, YouTube, you know, Periscope, Twitter, Instagram. I mean, he's everywhere. Um, It's a really good show uh, and very important because you get news, particularly news about the black community and what's going on and black thought and black experts and people who are experts on all these things who never are seen on the CNNs and MSNBCs of the world. But these are the people that will give you something more and deeper and extra than what you will get on these, what I call more corporate centrist friendly type channels like CNN and MSNBC. Um, Because you don't have progressive TV. MSNBC is not a progressive network. What does progressive mean? Right. How many conversations do they have about the Green New Deal on MSNBC? How many honest conversations, genuine conversations do they have about Medicare for all on MSNBC? How many conversations do they have about the issues of policing on MSNBC? And I'm talking about conversations that are being held and generated by progressives. You know, how how many, how many conversations do you ever find on MSNBC or CNN from a progressive point of view, except for when someone's demonizing progressives, when AOC is invited on these channels and then she's barraged with questions about, oh, what do you think about the House leadership and the, the Democrats are doing that, you know, that's the marginalization of the progressive movement. And now Bernie's invited on television like nothing happened back in January and February and March. I mean, the corporate news media were demonizing him. And I know that there are some progressives um, whom Bernie has fallen out of favor with. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. But my whole thing is, is that this is not about one person. It's not just about one person, this movement, whether it's AOC or Bernie or whomever. It's not about personalities. This is about people. And I love AOC. I think she's an excellent leader. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is, I think, very, very, very good. Very important voice. And she's going to be um, a major, major, major contributor to uh, the dialogue in this country and also in leadership. She's going to be major. But again, the agenda of the people must be at the top of mind And we have to craft an agenda that is going to be presented to Biden and Harris. And it's going to be something that pushes us forward. All of the garbage that we've seen these last four years and what we're still seeing now, you know, that kind of garbage is the last dying breaths of a racist policy and a racist agenda embodied by a racist. All this stalling, all these Republicans stalling, this is the Republican Party stalling the inevitable. Forestalling the inevitable, it's going to happen. They're going to be losing that seat in the White House, if you will. 
And that place better be disinfected. Like crazy. Between 12 o'clock and what? 12.10 or 12.30. Make sure that you fumigate that place. You know? Completely fumigate that place. I don't think Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to be able to enter the place once they've finished giving their speeches. Certainly, uh, uh, then you know, soon to be President Joe Biden, because the 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 fumes and the uh, the uh, the fragrance of the fumigation of that place is going to be overwhelming. They may have to air the place out for a couple of days. Or a couple of months. Joe Biden might have to do his uh, press conferences from Wilmington, Delaware. Not from his basement, but, you know. My goodness me. I mean, can you imagine the filth that the Biden transition team and Biden-Harris are going to be encountering once they settle in? And all the cockroaches that are going to be running around out of the, out of the, oh God, this is going to be something awful. Welcome back. As promised, a few minutes here now about Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. And I'm going to be having more discussions about this in the coming weeks. Um, because it's really important that we do this because um, th- this is this issue is really important. Um, racism in any form has got to has got to end and end now, and the structures that enforce and and endorse and are are the very heart of it have to go, and we have to really do the work to make that happen, to really. Ab- abolish and just get rid of completely dismantle and get rid of destroy these kinds of systems that find people in these places where you know you've got this oppression and this system and it's based on a lot of things and race is definitely at the heart of it power racism um, oppression of people who do not have um, any avenue but their voice to vote with really we really have our voice and that's the quite frankly the only thing we have is our voice and our vote and the vote is our voice our voice is our vote that is the one thing we have and for years we've been tricked into believing that our voice doesn't count for anything well it does actually count for something because they would not be suppressing it if it did not just look at the vote this year in this 2020 election for president. And you tell me whether your vote counted or not. You better believe your vote counted. You better believe it mattered. You tell me whether your vote mattered or not. Look at Georgia. Joe Biden won it. Thanks to black voters at large. Thanks to young voters in Georgia. Black voters especially in Georgia, made this victory happen for Joe Biden. Black voters in Milwaukee made this victory happen for Joe Biden. Black voters in Detroit made this victory happen for Joe Biden. Black voters in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia especially made this 
Victory happened for Joe Biden. Latinx voters in Arizona, in Nevada, they made this victory happen for Joe Biden. Young voters stepped up. Young people voting made this victory possible for Joe Biden. So these groups and seniors as well in Arizona, in particular and elsewhere, parts of Florida, but seniors also did. So there's a coalition here. So we need to have a coalition and we need to build that coalition, right? We've got young people, we've got black folk, we've got Latinx, we've got Native Americans, we've got the youth and seniors. This is the opportunity to coalition build. This is the opportunity to have Zoom meetings, to reach out to groups, to interface with groups. I talked about this last week about having an agenda. What are your three issues? Which three issues are the most important to you? Which issues are those? Write them down. Write a sentence or two about them. Write what you want to see happen, what you want the Biden-Harris administration to do, and then translate that also to state government, to local, and, and, and send your agenda paper out to people in those positions of power. This is what I want to see done. And, and even before you do that, get your friends to do the same thing. Let make Have them write out at a meeting, Zoom meeting or whatever meeting you want to do. And, you know, fate, whatever, whatever the meeting is, right? And you have your friends and people you know write down three issues. And if you can agree on those, present them, be an organization, join together, coalesce. Then build your coalition, build a movement, build this. You've got these groups, right? You've got the older group, the seniors. You've got the youth. You've got black people. You've got Latinx. You've got Native Americans. And you've got Asian Americans too. You've got a growing number of Asian Americans that voted for Joe Biden. In a lot of these places, particularly, by the way, in, in, in Metro Atlanta, that's not being talked about enough. So, you know, this is coalition building for the future. We have a real opportunity here because as I keep saying, and as you know, white voters will vote for the Republican candidate. A majority of them will. 58% of white men did for Donald Trump this time around in 2020 and 55% of white women did this time around for Donald Trump in 2020. So you know, going right back off the top, that most white voters will vote for the Republican. So there's got to be coalition building. And I think that that's critical. I didn't even get to Jeremy Corbyn yet, my goodness. And I will. But this is just because this is really important. The strategy begins now. I know there's a holiday coming up next week um, for those who observe it. Um, and there's not going to be any kind of Thanksgiving this year. I mean, come on. I know people are going out and visiting with their family, but I just think, I'm sorry, it's not worth it for one year. Um, I'm going to be FaceTiming people and Zooming people. That's what I'm going to be doing. Zooming, fa you know, that's Zooming family. That That's what you do and have a, a virtual dinner like that. You know, that's what I, th I think that's what, if people have, now I know some people don't, I just talked about it earlier. I know some people don't have computers, 
But this is what you should do. Virtual, if you have a computer and online access, do this. Virtual, make, make your experience virtual to the extent that you can do that. You know, that, that, that's what you should do. Pick up or pick up the phone. You know, I know it's difficult for some people because, you know, you've not seen your parents for a long time. You've not, you know, people are, are not well, you know, people who have this virus. But, you know, again, again, this is the thing, right? But we've got so many issues that we can coalesce around. If we can get a coalition, a cross-section, seniors, the youth. I mean, I really, I mean, I really would love to do this. Let's reach out to these seniors. Let's reach out to these youth the youth voters, the young people. Let's reach out and let's have a, a coalition of, of black folk, of Latinx, of Native American. Of a, do you know how powerful that would be? Because the demographics in this country are changing every day. One of the reasons that Georgia went to Joe Biden was because there are more black folk and Latinx voting. More black people were voting this time. 25, 25 to 30% more. The country's getting browner and blacker. And that's what's happening, folks. And Joe Biden has to be very, very thankful. And he owes a debt of gratitude to black voters, especially black women voters. And he owes a debt of gratitude to the Latinx community. The Latinx community put him in, in power as well, especially in Arizona and Nevada and in, and in parts of uh, Florida and, and in North Carolina, even though he lost North Carolina, he got a lot of votes there from Latinx and in other parts of the state of the country as well. So, you know, Joe Biden has a lot of people to thank. And I hope he does thank them, not just by thanking them during his inauguration speech in 62 days time, but by actually implementing things and putting people in power but also implementing policy that is going to help turn the tide in this country for black people in particular, but also for Latinx, Native Americans, and the young in this country who are facing all of these challenges. So as promised, I'm going to talk about Jeremy Corbyn right now. And Jeremy Corbyn, of course, was the Labour leader um, in the United Kingdom, the Labour Party, one of the two biggest parties in the United Kingdom. The other is the Conservative Party. And last year, December of last year, there was an election, general election was held in the United Kingdom. And at the time, the Conservatives were holding on to power in the United Kingdom with a plurality of seats thanks to a coalition with the DUP. Now, the, that whole relationship strained and soured and the DUP did not back Boris Johnson in a number of things during the parliamentary year in 2019. But what really bailed Boris Johnson out were two things. Number one, get Brexit done. It was a slogan that was repeated so much that even people in the corporate news media in the UK were saying it. I mean, they repeated it. I mean, people on Sky News, 
we're, we're doing his bidding for him. You know, Comcast owns Sky News, by the way. Um, and I think Murdoch is either only a part owner, Rupert Murdoch, or he's no longer an owner. I think he's given up his ownership in Sky News. He had controlled Sky for many years. He- but, you know, there were just, you know, this Murdoch controlled Sky. He was the architect of it. And, um, you know, the, the story is just incredible. This is uh, Boris Johnson won based on Brexit, get Brexit done. And look, um, we can talk about vote leave and we can relitigate that all day. Um, yes, there was unprecedented levels of fraud and deceit of the British voting public. That is, there's no question about that. Even the vote leave camp will admit that. Well, maybe they won't admit that. They probably won't admit it. But there was fraud. There was absolute fraud involved. And the Vote EU or whatever that group was with Aaron Banks, the billionaire Aaron Banks. Um, And I think in some cases they have been vindicated by these quote-unquote investigations. But in a very real sense, look, there was a lot of chicanery that went on. Cambridge Analytica got involved, all this stuff. And it helped to sway the outcome. A lot of people got deceived. Don't tell the 52% of voters in the UK that, though, because the 52% who voted that um, the UK should leave the European Union, many of them will get risably upset with you if you say to them that you were tricked. No one wants to admit that they've been duped. Um, No one wants to believe that. It's the hardest thing to do, right, to convince someone they've been tricked than to convince, you know, someone that they're a fool, right? It's easier to convince someone that they are a fool than to convince them that they've been tricked. Seriously. I mean, you can say to someone, oh, come on, you fool. You know that's not true. Versus telling them you've been duped. You've been had. You've been took, you know, in the words of Malcolm X. You've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray, run amok, you know. People take a little less kindly to being told that they've been hoodwinked or tricked. But if you colloquially call somebody a fool and say, hey, look, come on, don't be a fool. They might even laugh that off with you. They may laugh that off. They may laugh it off. But Boris Johnson took full advantage of his vote leave position and ran a campaign both in the conservative leadership in in the run-up to it in July of 2019 in which he became the conservative party leader and by default the prime minister because Theresa May announced that she was stepping down and she stepped down literally um, you know technically it was a few weeks before then but um, she stayed on for a few more weeks um, see how about that for transitions see it can be done right in politics transitions actually can be done right I mean doesn't matter if they're the same party or not transitions have been done for decades So Theresa May, the prime minister at the time, outgoing, stayed on um, for a couple more weeks and a few more weeks. Then Boris Johnson came in. 
And he ran on that, the conservative leadership. You know, at the time, it was less than 200,000 people in the entire country who had voted in the conservative leadership uh, uh, election. People forget that. In the UK, um, literally less than 3% of the voters voted because the conservative leadership is drawn from the party membership. And the party membership for the conservatives, I think, is around 160,000 people, something like that. And from that group, most of that group is wealthy or well-off or, um, you know, mostly white, male, and over 65. And very few are black, making under 80,000 pounds a year, um, you know, or are female. So you had a mostly white male, 60 to 65 and over, electorate that put Boris Johnson in as the conservative leader and by default the prime minister because if you're the ruling power in the parliamentary uh, scheme of things and if you are the ruling member obviously the ruling party um, in at number one, number 10 Downing Street then obviously if you're the new leader of the conservative party then by default you're the prime minister so he was the prime minister for what three or four or five months before this December 12th election came along last year, then Boris Johnson's campaign, which began well, around September or so, and it's, it had fits and starts. He got booed everywhere he went. You know, a, a police cadet um, fainted in front of him. You know, I mean, that's all documented. You know, she was standing and she was fainting. And he just, yeah, that was just the whole thing. But none of that stopped him from getting, getting, re- getting elected, right? You know, because people don't vote on things like this. It's sad, but it's the truth. People don't vote. Oh, this uh, cadet, she fe- she fainted. Oh, no, I don't care. And that's the average voter in any country, in many countries, in some countries. Oh, I don't care. I don't care. It's about me, me, me. And that's a sad thing, but it's true. And I think that we need to be a bit less selfish. And I think voters are showing that they are less selfish because look what they did here in the United States, right? It wasn't just about their 401ks, those of you who have, those are the voters out there who have 401ks to begin with, right? You know, I mean, whether yours has disappeared or not or whatever. But the point is, is that people in this country, nearly 80 million of them now, 80 million people said, no, this isn't just about me. This is about the country. This is about everybody in it and where we need to go from here and who is best equipped to get us to that place and who we can work with to get us to that place where we all have justice in this country, where we can keep fighting for the things that really matter in this country. Who's the best? And they made a choice here. In England last year, they thought the choice was Boris Johnson. They didn't care about his 30-year record. They didn't care about all the stuff and all the failures. And they didn't care about his personal life and his immorality. They didn't care about any of that. I mean, maybe that's a little harsh. Some people might think that me saying that is harsh about his personal life. But Boris Johnson's personal life, like Donald Trump's, is not a bed of roses. I guess none of ours is, right? But we are certainly not in that category. I know I'm not. I don't know about you. I'm going to speak for myself. (laughs) Mr. Moralizer. (laughs) No, no, no. Come on. Um... 
And I'm also not running 10 Downing Street either. And I'm not in the White House. But what I'm saying to you, dear listener, is that Boris Johnson had a message, which was get Brexit done. He hammered that message over and over again. As I said, the media took that up and and ate it up and repeated it, which is what the conservatives do, right? Um, The media has their ear and the media always genuflects to them. The BBC certainly does. Oh, my God. The BBC. Oh, my goodness me. Uh, That's a whole nother episode, by the way. But that message was effective because it was repeated over and over. Donald Trump does the same thing. Right. And I think one of the reasons he won, among many others, in 2016, is because he repeated this message. That four word message beginning with make. Um, and that message resonated with people. With racists, but it, it, and with misogynists and with people who hate Muslims. With those racists, yeah, you know, the racist people out there, you know. And some black folk do. You racist white people doing this. And, you know, you had black people who hated uh, immigrants, hated Latinx. You know, a small group, but nonetheless, they were part of this. Some Latinos were part of this. You know? And those messages resonated in 2016. Not now, of course. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris resonated. And the urgency of the COVID-19 pandemic resonated. And the economy. Those are things that people really care about, right? They don't care about Boris Johnson's um, seven children. What are we up to now? Six, seven, eight? Is it eight now? I mean, his fiance, Carrie Simons. Yeah, you yeah, know. People don't care about that because, quite frankly, it's personal. And people in personal lives can relate to things because maybe they're going through some of these things, right? So the personal stuff, even though I yammered on about it here, it's not the best thing to go after someone on unless there's some egregious stuff, Donald Trump. And even then, the electorate didn't care about that here, did they? You know, all the access Hollywood tapes in the world didn't sway 62 and a half million people. You know? Didn't didn't sway 73 and a half million people now. I mean, COVID-19 did not sway. The fact that this guy genocided over 250,000 people in this country to this virus, it didn't sway 73 and a half million people. And they just voted for him. I mean, that should definitely worry you. But it shouldn't shock you and it shouldn't surprise you. Because this is what we've had here for years. People like this. Donald Trump just gave them permission to come out and dance. Dance with their hatred and their lies and their filth. Thankfully, there's going to be at least 80 million people who said, no, we're pro-life, pro-love. Pro-truth, pro-facts, pro-science. But Boris Johnson got in uh, to number 10 Downing Street for an elected term because he had a message. 
Jeremy Corbyn did not. Jeremy Corbyn was the other reason why Boris Johnson lost, because Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, who was running against Boris Johnson for number 10 Downing Street, was equivocal about Brexit, was a Brexiteer, did not want to stay in the EU. Personally, he didn't. That is an open secret. And the other thing that really hurt, and by the way, his debate performance, and even though I think he won those three debates with Boris Johnson, there was one debate, or at least two, where he could have really gone at Boris Johnson, and for some weird reason, he didn't. Now, why would that be? Why would you, if you want power at number 10, why would you pull your punches against a guy who there was so much to punch at his record and his ideas? He was so pro the 10, top 5% of the country. I've been a friend of the bankers. Do you remember that comment when he was at the uh, Birmingham, um, whatever that was? And it was LBC host uh, Ian Dale who interviewed him. Ian Dale's a conservative, he's been around for a long time, good man. I, he's a conservative I really respect. And there's some conservative, look, I've invited them on, who I, who I like to talk to, I think, uh, you know, have a level of, of uh, integrity to them. Um, and their ideas are out there, and you can decide um, where you stand on that, whether you agree or not. Ian Dale is, is one of those kind. I've never had never had him on. I'd love to talk to him. Um, he's probably too busy at this point, but I would like to talk to him. And he's someone who um, I think um, presents some really good ideas about things, some of which I disagree with, um, but some of which I think are feasible and are, are, are good ideas. He interviewed, he did the... Uh, um, no, I just forgot the word, but he did the, uh, and someone who knows this can tell me um, at the popcorn R-E-E-L on Twitter. He did, he did this um, thing in Birmingham and I forgot what it's called. It begins with M or an R or something. Um, and and it's, it's one of these, th- you know, it's like a little meeting. You interview the person um, for a few minutes, then you interview the other candidate. This was during the leadership stuff. Um, Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson and both of them were seen as wildly undesirable candidates and I was <laughs> as the Labour person I was hoping that Jeremy Hunt would get in and Jeremy Hunt God, he's only helped to really desecrate the NHS but you know never you know, never mind that I mean I did not want to be neutral on this even as a Labour person I did not want to be neutral I did not want to allow that leadership race in the Conservative Party um, to go on without me having a say, however inconsequential or, or not it might be. I, I think it was important to have an opinion about that because I would rather have had Jeremy Hunt in there. He would have done damage too. He would have done damage with a smile on his face and he would have given you a parachute with which to land. Versus Boris Johnson, no parachute, no smile, and no soft landing. I mean, what kind of a Hobson's choice is that? What kind of a choice is that? You know, what kind of a Sophie's choice is that? You know, 
it, but this, this is what happened. And the bottom line, folks, the bottom line here of all of this is that Jeremy Corbyn's reticence to do battle on Brexit because his position was so obviously aligned with Jeremy, uh, Jeremy, with Boris Johnson. And Boris Johnson probably would turn around at the debate and say, hey, look, he's a Brexiteer. You've got to be fearless, though. Argue for the position of your party. But what was that? It wasn't clear on the Jeremy Corbyn because different factions in the party said different things about Brexit. So that was a problem. And all Boris Johnson did was hammer Brexit home all the time. Even though we all knew it was not going to get done, it hadn't been done on three or four prior occasions to that December 2019 uh, election. Oh, it's going to happen by the end of the year. Then it didn't. It happened, and it didn't happen this year, even though they supposedly left at the end of January. It didn't happen, did it? Didn't happen. Still in the EU. Still. Still. And now there's six more weeks of <laughs> David Frost. So David Frost, not the David Frost, obviously, who's no longer with us, but the Sir David Frost... Uh, who is uh, doing these uh, negotiations in Brussels or in Hamburg or wherever he is doing them. I think it's Brussels. I don't remember. But anyway, he's he's got six weeks to come up with something. And I'm telling you, it's going to be a no deal. There's no way there's going to be a deal in six more weeks. And we're going to crash out of the EU. And it's going to be a nightmare. And uh, as the conservative councillor, um, Claire Pearsall, told me, last week on this podcast, and you can go back and listen to that episode. Um, a lot of people are going to be hurting. And her constituents in, in Kent, in New Ash Green, in Kent, um, you know, in the, she's been dealing with, with the concerns and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's going on. Um, ports of entry, she talked about all this. You really got to go back and listen to that uh, that episode. Because this is the kind of thing that is not being focused on enough, I think, in the corporate news media in the United Kingdom. Um, this is really rough. But people voted for this guy. And Jeremy Corbyn, the biggest other problem for him was anti-Semitism. And his attachment to it. And the idea that, oh, well, I don't agree with that. And he agreed with Facebook posts and he liked Facebook posts. He was by a wall, a picture of him by a wall or by a graffiti that was anti-Semitic and he's kind of posing with it or pointing at it or whatever the hell it is. It's just not a good look. He didn't do enough to distance himself from anti-Semitism. And he claimed that he would. And maybe he did do some work on it. But I'm sorry. You've really got to, on stuff like this or any other kind of racism, you have to show and prove. And the bottom line problem was is that Jeremy Corbyn was a real problem for that party. Even party insiders in, inside of Labour told you that after the fact. And as I have said before here, I think it was Jonathan Ashworth, who was the Shadow Health Minister, um, I believe, Shadow Health Secretary uh, in Labour, to the Health Secretary Matt Hancock. And what a doozy he is. Jonathan Ashworth was caught on an audio or something saying, oh, you know, this is just basically disparaging Corbyn. And some guy, you know, taped him without his knowledge. Oh, and I'm so upset. No, you're not. You wanted that to come out, dude. <laughs> you wanted that video audio to come out, right? Because that's the truth. 
right? There were Labour people in that party, people in that party who were telling you that Corbyn would be a disaster. There were the loyalists, you know, the loyalists were there and they have their place. They have a right to have their place. I I was a Corbyn fan, but as this anti-Semitism continued to go, I had to stop. I am not going to support somebody. And I supported him for the purposes of the election. There's no way I was voting for Boris Johnson. Are you kidding? But, but personally, I was not a fan of Corbyn. I mean, I, I was supporting the party rather than Corbyn. And by the way, as you, as you may or may not know, in the UK, they don't vote for the prime minister directly. Just as you actually don't vote for the president here directly. Either you vote for a slate of electors. I mean, you do vote for the president directly because you select that person's name, right? So you do actually do that. But in reality, the mechanism, as you know, is that you are voting for electors who will provide that vote. What you're doing is you're voting and saying, here, electors, you have to pick Joe Biden. I'm voting for the Biden electors in the Electoral College. That's who you're voting for. If you voted for Joe Biden a few weeks ago or even a couple of months ago, because the early voting started a couple of months ago, then you voted for Joe Biden's electors in your state. That's what you voted for. And you didn't vote directly for Joe Biden, if you understand what I mean. I mean, you did vote for him, but you know what I mean. Same thing in the UK, but it's slightly different there because in the UK, Boris Johnson's name will not appear in most of the constituencies anywhere in the United Kingdom, except only one place in Ryslip, in Uxbridge, in Uxbridge, in the town of Uxbridge, in Western London, where really is in Middlesex, um, but it's outer, 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 outer London, which is, re- Uxbridge is not part of London. So <laughs> I know it's not. I mean, I'm, I'm from not far from there originally. So it's not part of London, folks. It's, it's, it's way out. Although some people might disagree with me, but it's not. This expansion of London has got to be ridiculous now. Um, I mean, soon Kent will be part of <laughs> Claire Pearson will probably laugh at that. Um, but no, really, so I mean, this expansion, that's a whole nother thing. But the, the, the point, the point that I, I'm trying to make here is that when you're voting, you're voting for your member of parliament in the UK. So you're voting for that person in your district, in your constituency, in your borough whether it's the London Borough of Harrow, the London Borough of, you name it, right? If you're in London or in some other part of England or other part of, you know, the UK. So that's really what you're dealing with, right? And so you're voting for that MP. And what happens is, however many of you in the country vote for a Conservative MP or vote for a Labour MP, whichever of those two parties gets the majority of the votes or the majority, rather, of their MPs into the House of Parliament, House of Commons, in Parliament, that's who the governing party will be. So then the Prime Minister will be whomever, you know, is the governing person that wins the leadership election or is the current leader of the party, or is the Prime Minister if someone if the if that party is re-elected to Parliament. That's how it operates there. It's a parliamentary system in the UK. 
entirely based on how many MPs of a political party get to rule the day, as it were, when it comes to the vote. Bottom line here, folks, is very, very simple. And that bottom line is this. The bottom line is this. Is that um, Jeremy Corbyn's history with anti-Semitism is downright disgraceful. And the Labour Party has not done enough about anti-Semitism, period. Period. Full stop. And even before Corbyn, although it really materialized with Corbyn, there have been issues in the Labour Party with these kinds of evil things. And there's also issues with, about Islamophobia, uh, particularly in the Conservative Party. There's some you know, anti-Jewish things being said there, racist things being said there about black people, anti-black... I mean, there are MPs that have gone on record about that have said this. I mean, my gosh, some of them have been suspended once or twice or, I mean, violence against women. You saw what happened with, uh, was it Mark Frost or whatever his name was? Mark Fields, excuse me. That guy who now, who's now no longer in, in Parliament, he stepped his ass down because, you know, it's not cool to put your hands around the neck of a woman and, and drag her out of a building. That's not cool. That, that's, a, that's called violence against women. That's called a criminal act. That's called jail time if you are a regular person. And it was also caught on camera. And even he didn't leave, right? He, had, he, he didn't resign. He was suspended or whatever, muzzled. But he didn't leave until he decided to, to not run again. Now, nobody suspended him. Nobody can't. Nobody fired him from the party. Jeremy Corbyn's anti-Semitism is reprehensible as well. And I know they're the loyalists and the loyalists have the right to be heard from. We all have the right to be heard from. But we can't make this just about Jeremy Corbyn. We have to make this about the structure of a party and what it is doing or not doing to combat anti-Jewish racism. That's what this has got to be about now. Because if you start focusing on personalities, and Lord knows Jeremy Corbyn's a big one, personality-wise, it's going to all be about a cult. It's going to all be about, well, we're for him, we're not for him. And you're centering it around one person and not around one issue. And the one issue here is anti-Semitism. That's what the issue is. It's anti-Jewish racism. And that's what has to be tackled here, not just in the Labour Party, not just in the Conservative Party, but in the entire country and on the, around the globe. That's really where the fight has to be. And I think both of these parties have to reflect a real commitment, not just to talking, but to doing and acting. And I applaud Sakir Starmer. I think his decision was correct. Yesterday, I know lots of people disagree with that and lots of people agree with that. I think Sakia Starmer was right not to restore the whip. He, he absolutely has the parliamentary uh, prerogative to do that. He has the power to. This nonsense that you hear that, oh, Sakia Starmer doesn't have the power to remove the, to, to remove the whip. Oh, oh, yes, he does. Boris Johnson had the power to do it. He did it when he removed the whip from 23 at least 
23 Tory MPs last year. Of course, he has the, he's the leader of the party. He's the leader of the parliamentary party. He has absolute right to secure, to remove the whip. There is no mistaking that. Uh, that notion is just, you know, oh, he doesn't have the right to. He does. And by the way, the people who decided to remove Jeremy Corbyn and suspend him in the first place were a different, I mean, this is a different group. You have to understand, you had these different levels, right? There is a parliamentary process and a different group. The I think it's the National Executive, the NEC, the National Executive Committee of Labour, independent from Keir Starmer. So Keir had nothing to do with any of that stuff. Sakir can put recommendations in. And I suspect that's what happened when Jeremy Corbyn made these statements against the EHRC report and said that some of these things were exaggerated about anti-Semitism. And then he said that in an interview. Some of these things were exaggerated. You can't say that. Then he issued, and I'm sure Sakir recommended to the NEC to do what they did. So they absolutely suspended him from the party. That was last month. 19 days later, this week, he was unsuspended by that same NEC. And I bet you that Corbyn got people who were allies of his, whether it was Lynn McCluskey or anyone else, to put pressure on the NEC or people in the NEC who were Corbyn loyalists. I think that that may have happened. And I think that that's what happened there. And I don't know, that was beyond Sakir's control. I don't know what happened. And so Sakir now has a decision to make as the leader of the Labour Party, because that's what he is. He became the leader in April of this year. And he made it clear that anti-Jewish racism is not going to be tolerated. And I was right there with him. I am 100% behind that too. None of this stuff is good. None of this stuff is good it's evil and it cannot be tolerated by anybody. Anybody. Islamophobia can't be tolerated. None of this can be tolerated. And in this case, since the subject is anti-Semitism, and that is really hurting the Labour Party, among other things. Sakir made a stand on Wednesday and he decided, no, I'm not restoring the whip. Which means he has no parliamentary power as a member of the party. He can just sit there as an independent. He's not a Labour MP in the House of Commons. He is known as an independent. He can sit where he wants. I mean, Kenneth Clark did. When he got removed, the whip was stripped from him. And he was an independent, but he still sat in the same place. A backbencher for years now. Still sat, sat in the same place. You know, and I dare say Jeremy Corbyn will too. But he's not a Labour Party MP for the purposes of the parliamentary operation anymore. He can't operate under the auspices of the party while in parliament. But he's still a member of the party. In name. But not in power. And that's what everybody now is upset about. People who support Jeremy Corbyn have had it. And they're now aiming their lasers at Sakir not Sakir's fault though anti-semitism is what you should be aiming your lasers at not at some power struggle 
I mean, yes, that's something to, to look at and consider because the Labour Party has been splintered like this for decades now. Decades. But this notion that, oh, now uh, Sakir is the enemy, when Sakir wants to get rid of anti-Semitism in the party, really? I don't think Sakir is the problem here. Welcome back. I just think both of these parties have a lot of work to do. Obviously, the conservatives are in huge disarray and their policies have been absolutely devastating. Not in a good way for the United Kingdom. Um, the irresponsibility that comes from Boris Johnson, the failure to take responsibility, absolutely, absolutely vacant from Boris Johnson. And it's just absolutely shocking. The mind-numbing mindlessness of someone who just wants to be prime minister and doesn't want to do anything at all, but just be in the office. He just wants the power to do nothing with. That is what we are dealing with. And people are dying across the UK. Because Boris Johnson doesn't want to govern. And it seems to me that the Tory mantra is let the 5% live. The rest of you, you're up shit's creek without a paddle, mate. It's incomprehensible. It really is that voters could even deign to make this kind of quote-unquote mistake yet again in three or so years. Really? I mean, are we really going to see this in 2023 or 2024? Are we really going to see voters put Boris Johnson back in again? Will Boris Johnson even be up again? I think his leadership is going to be challenged. I think there's going to be a leadership contest. I really do. When that general election gets called, in the next whenever, and it will be probably, we'll have this general election in the UK in 2023 or 2024. There's going to be a leadership contest and he's going to be challenged. I think uh, Rishi Sunak is going to be one of the two biggest contenders. I think it's very possible that one of the other contenders again will be Jeremy Hunt. Um, I think he's going to be there. Um, I think Sajid Javid might throw his name into the ring again. Um, and there'll be more. There'll be others. I don't think Esther McVeigh will run again. You know, good grief. Esther McVeigh. I don't think um, Matt Hancock will run again. Good Lord. How can you have Matt Hancock run for anything? How? I mean, Dominic Robb, Really? That I think Dominic Raab will probably run again. It's just it's just incredible to me. I I I I think that um, it's possible, very possible, that um, no, she's not going to run again either. I don't think so. <sighs> um, 
I don't know. I, the, the Look, that's still a, a few years off. I think um, British politics right now, UK politics right now, England politics right now, particularly, is just really all over the mire. I mean, you've got Boris Johnson attacking Scottish devolution. Oh, devolution is, I mean, really, you're attacking that? And you wonder why the Scottish want independence from the United Kingdom? You you wonder why? They don't want to leave Europe. They don't want a no deal. The Scottish National Party certainly doesn't. The Scottish Conservatives might certainly oblige. I think they would. But the Scottish National Party won't. The SNP, as led in Parliament by... Um, Ian Blackford and, and led um, in in the party by uh, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. They don't want to be. They don't want to leave the EU. Why drag Scotland? If if Scotland doesn't want to be dragged, then why drag it? I think Scot Scotland has every right to ask for independence and to declare it and to vote on it again. And everybody's going to point to two thousand fourteen. Oh, 2014, we said no. Well, well, let's have another vote. Let's do it again, shall we? And vote for independence. I, I really think Scotland should. You know? Why not? Why drag a country out of the EU that doesn't want to be dragged, doesn't want to be out of the EU, wants to be a partner to the EU? Why, why should Scotland have to go along with that? And have to go along with a, a prime minister who insults them at every turn? Why? Why be part of that? I don't think Scotland wants to be part. I know they don't. I guess you're going to have to let the voters decide. That's how it gets done. And I think the SNP have more than a few good points to make about this. So does, uh, so does Ian Blackford, who I, I actually respect him a great deal. I, I like him. It's on Twitter and um, I'll put a link to him, to him and to Nicholas Sturgeon. Get to know these folks. Um, and I'll start to do this with other politicians beyond America and around the globe. So people can be exposed to, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've probably followed these people already anyway. But no, it's good to know about things beyond your own borders. You know? Anyway. I think I'll end it here. <laughs> I have got on long enough. Um, but I hope that you have enjoyed listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. <laughs>